afternoon. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Manchester United podcast. I'm Helen Evans. With me today, as always, are Maisie. Hi Maisie, how are you? I'm alright mate, good. Good, good. And new father Sam, we have a new baby podcaster in the group. Congratulations Sam. Thank you very much. You're now mature. Yeah, I'm a grown up. You're responsible for another human being. Yeah, um, good luck to them. <laughs> How old is she now? 10 days, something like she that? She is now 12, 12 days old. Aww. Yeah, she's 12 days old and she's real nice. And uh, she's good at cuddles. And I am like a Formula One pit crew when it comes to a nappy. Are you? Mastered it? Just like straight in there. Yeah. Got, no, exactly what I'm doing. Get it done, get it out. And then usually one in three or one in five, somehow she does a wee in between while that's going on that mm. messes the whole system up. But when I get it right, I'm pretty pleased with myself. It's <laughs> a so work in progress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, What's her name? Uh, Florence. What Florence. a lovely name. Mm. Are you going to call her Flo for short? No, no. Oh, in fact, glad we cleared was, that up. Glad yeah, we cleared that it up. Was one, it was one of those things where I almost uh, didn't pick that name because of that abbreviation. Oh, awkward. I know, it's funny, isn't it? But everybody says that. Everybody says, oh, what, will you shorten it too? I think it's only two syllables. You can probably cope. Yeah. Uh, everyone could call me Simon with no problem, can they? It's only two <laughs> syllables. <laughs> Which is actually longer than Sam. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. Yeah. We're so happy for you. Thank you very much. I'll be coming yeah. to both of you for uh, expert advice. Uh, Maisie, I really enjoyed a clip that uh, someone put on Twitter of you passing a ball off in, was it the Treble Reunion game? It was, yeah. My little cameo. Doing like an Ali G finger snap. Bushakayak. <laughs> Please don't do that again. That's Booyakashak. Booyakashak. <laughs> what did I say? Booyakashak. <laughs> Hey, you know, things you do. Today on the podcast, we have Gary Bailey, who has come up so many times in so many other podcasts. I think you'll both agree. Yeah, and like everybody says he's the guy with the stories, don't they? Yeah. You better I'd do. <laughs> really awkward if he's rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Someone you know, Maisie? No, I've never had the pleasure. No, uh, our paths have never crossed. No, hmm. so looking forward to today. Yeah. Old school. I like the old school ones. Yeah, I do yeah. too. They've always got yeah. a story the behind them, don't they? Always tell the stories, mm-hmm. yeah. And our second South African after Quinton. Second South African, yeah. Yeah. Well, he is. He did. He born he did in England. Play, but Yeah, he played twice for England, didn't he? Yeah, but I think he calls himself South African. But we'll find out. We'll be fun to find out, won't yeah. it? Yeah. Let's get him in. He's Gary Bailey. Oh, amazing. That's smooth. Booyakasha. <laughs> Booyakasha. Oh. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good, how are you? Good, good. So I take it you're Helen. I am. And that's Sam next to you. Welcome to the United Podcast. Yeah, great to be with you, Sam. Look forward to having a nice chat and going back over old times. Not so sure that you can remember a lot of the old times we'll chat about, but uh, hopefully I'll give you a bit more detail. (laughs) Gary, are you okay? Maisie, how are you doing? I'm all good, pal. I'm all good. How are you? Yeah, great. Can't complain. I live in Miami. What's it to complain about? <laughs> Don't start. We'll get off to a bad yeah. start if you talk yeah. about that. <laughs> what time's it over there, mate? Uh, where are we? 10 in the morning. 10 in Just the morning. Just finished my run. Hence all the sweat. Still trying to get half an hour in every day. That's good. You still running, Maisie? Every day. Well, every other day. Yeah. Running the kids to school and uh, to training uh, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Guys, whereabouts in Florida are you? 
In Miami, uh, on Miami Beach. So we've, uh, we live in a fantastic place. The kids have all left home. So we are just the missus and myself. And um, we decided to live the way we wanted to live. So uh, right outside here is the bay with the boats and the beach and all that. So if you want me to turn the Zoom camera around at some stage, I can do and really annoy the hell out of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the weather like? Uh, you know what? Today, it's actually a Manchester day. It's the first time I've seen grey. You know, they've just covered grey uh, skies. Yeah. But the temperature has dropped down to 22 degrees Celsius, which for us is a miserable day. <laughs> I'd love a miserable day. Yeah. I know. You were, that's, I'm just, I'm just going to piss you off if I keep telling you about Miami. <laughs> the beaches, the weather. Oh. And now we've got Bex and Phil up the road with the soccer team. So mm. it's yeah. all happening. Yeah. Well, no pressure, but a lot of your former teammates and players we've spoken to who played in that sort of era, all of them reference you as the guy we need to talk to for great stories. Your name comes up <laughs> constantly. Uh, good stories or bad stories? Just, just the stories we need to hear, apparently. So this is okay. what we've all been waiting for. Uh, tell us about life now, though. How are you? What are you doing? Where are you? Uh, living in Miami on Miami Beach, which has been a dream of mine, uh, a dream that took a lot of shape while I was in Manchester getting rained on every day. Um, but, you know, growing up in South Africa, I love I love the warm weather, uh, the beaches, uh, swimming. Um, so when we had a chance to leave South Africa about seven years ago, which is where I grew up, obviously, um, we chose we chose Miami as the place in the U.S. to live, and we've got a place on the beach. And yeah, I'm literally living the dream. I lived the dream at United, and I'm very fortunate that I continue to live the dream because to wake up every day in warm weather and go down to the beach—that's that's me in a nutshell. So very very happy, happily married, kids are all good, so no complaints at all. Good. And have you been in lockdown? What's the situation in Miami? Don't tell us you're all just free and doing what you want because that's going to make it worse yeah, look if you want the truth and that is it more or less yeah um it's amazing in the states that that they they've allowed a lot of life to continue obviously schools not so although the the, the little kiddie schools are, are still open uh, my granddaughter goes to uh, to school here and i think they they felt that the mums in particular couldn't be looking after two-year-olds all day long but other than that, restaurants are open, but you've got to sit outside. Mm -hmm. So we had Super Bowl last week. So uh, Mrs. Michelle and myself went down to the beach, found an outdoor restaurant. It's pretty safe as long as, you know, you're socially distanced. Um, we go to the beach some mornings and we just put a deck chair down and sit and enjoy. And again, uh, there's no real risk because you've got lots of space around you. So and, uh, it's the last thing you want to hear because I know things are very, very tough in the UK and especially midwinter. But here we've been very fortunate and... And yet, having said all of that, we feel we've got cabin fever. So God knows how yeah. you guys are coping your side. Thank goodness Around for us. podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not been the easiest, but that's what you have to do. Mm. Gary, you are you said before you came on, you're doing still a lot of stuff on Zoom. Is that where your work and BN Sports is that on Zoom at the minute? Or are you able to go and go to your workplace or what's happening? No, we're actually going to the studio. Obviously, we have to mask up um, and we only take the mask off when we get into the studio itself. But um, I've done the odd uh, sort of Zoom because like during the week, we'll have a little chat show and, and I'll hop on Zoom from home. But, but fortunately, the weekends we get in there and, and that's, that's great because I thought you miss the banter, you miss yeah. the sort of chats, the debates, the arguments. I mean, we've been, we, we, uh, I cover Spanish and French football at BN. Uh, I wish I could cover English as well, but unfortunately not. Um, but we've been looking at Barcelona PSG, which is the, the match is coming up today, our time. And um, 
And so we've been debating, you know, Barca and how good are they and Messi. And, and it's awesome to be around the lads arguing. Yeah. And of course, you take different positions and you, you debate it. And, and it's just a, it's a great chat and it's good fun. And they're two unbelievable sides, Barca and PSG. I get the privilege of watching Real Madrid and um, and also get a sense, Maisie, that, that, that in looking at Barca and Real Madrid and the expectations and PSG, United so disappoint me at times that our expectations are that a, a top four finish is, is good. Mm. And I'm looking at Real Madrid and Barca going, no, it's not. We're the biggest club in the world. Top four is not just good enough. We should be one or two at worst, like obviously under your time and Sir Alex's time. So I get that comparison every week when I, when I do Barca and Real Madrid and it's, mm. uh, it's frustrating, but it does, it does give us a, a, you know, a measure. And I always look and people, you know, fans this side say, how good are Man United? And I say, well, let's compare them to a PSG. And I look at PSG and I think, wow, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a squad. And that's, that's where we should be. And I, I keep sort of hoping that we're getting there step by step. Yeah. I, I agree with that. We are getting there slowly but surely. We are. He's turned it around, Ollie, to be fair. Yes. The players he's brought in, and Mason Greenwood obviously signing his new new deal today. That's great news for United. So we're in a good way. We'll we'll be fine. Guys, let's let's go back to you being a kid. You was born in Ipswich. Yeah. And you moved to South Africa at what age? Six. My dad was in the South Ramsey team that won the league in 61, 62. And mm -hmm. um I think he turned about 30 and the new manager came along and said, right, you're, you're out. And um, back in those days, if you're an English player, you had a choice of Australia or South Africa. And um, they chose South Africa because it was closer. Uh, I mean, I'm going back to the 60s here. They had, you had what uh, British Air, Airways was called BOAC. Yeah. And they flew like once a week and it probably took you about five days to get there. So <laughs> my, my folks decided that to stay in touch with, with um, my dad's family. My dad was one of 13, um, you know, raised in Surrey. And um, they, they chose South Africa. So I ended up there as a six-year-old and, and grew up there and was schooled there and went to university there. So I'm sort of South African by, by culture. I'm British by nature. And, uh, but I had the privilege of growing up in South Africa, to, you know, very good schools, like sort of private equivalent schools, um, good education, um, playing you know, soccer out in the sunshine and, and living on the beach. So it was a, a very different upbringing to you know, the rest of my teammates. And so when I arrived in 70 late 77 at United. Um, I guess one of the reasons why the lads say speak to me is I, I was just so different. I stuck out like a sore thumb. No one could figure me out. I was, <laughs> I was just lost. There was this university kid. I'd, I'd finished two years of civil engineering studies. So I came in as a, as a bit of an intellectual, cocky, young South African goalkeeper. Or, you know, you couldn't have mixed up a more of a mess for the lads because especially back in those days. I mean, if you were Irish, you were foreign. Seriously, you know, yeah. that was a foreigner, an Irishman, a South African coming in. They were like, they just couldn't, they could not figure me out. And I think we'd had the first real foreigner was Ozzy Ardiles in 78, joined Spurs. And that was like, wow, you know, this was an Argentinian. How do they, how do they play soccer there? What do they do? And, and so, again, being from South Africa, no one knew where it was in the world. No one had any idea. It's not like today with all the news. So yeah, it was a it was a cultural crash for me in in many ways. Was that difficult? 
Was it difficult? Yeah, that's an understatement. It was difficult. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I always believe a goalkeeper is at his peak or her peak in, in the late 20s, early 30s. Like we arrived, that was a good age. What was it, Maisie? It was about 26, 27. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. there's so much pressure on you. you. Your decision is you win and lose everything by them. And I was, I was in from 20 and stayed in for nine years. And, um, and it was just incredible pressure. So... If you're if you're a, a local lad or, or, or English anyway, you understand the culture. You're big. In those days, you had to be ugly because you got hit every game. So a decent goalkeeper had his nose over there somewhere. Was six foot five. Was thick as a brick wall. That was your standard goalkeeper. And I arrived from university as a young kid, and, and I'm busy chirping Martin Bakken and Gordon McQueen and telling them <laughs> where I want them to stand. And it was it was oh, it was just a. I'm amazed that I actually got through it. And I'm amazed that they they worked with me but I mean they were good center halves Martin Buckham was brilliant and and I, I must admit early on I played quite well and and I think they just we just found a way to operate and in my first full season we finished second in 1979-80 just after the, the cup final that we lost and um, it was a good season and final game of the of the season we played away at Leeds and if we won and Liverpool lost we were champions so it wasn't like you know we weren't a bad side mm. Uh, defensively very, very solid. So, yeah. Uh, you talked about your dad, Roy. Obviously, he was a goalkeeper too. What was life like growing up with a successful father as a goalkeeper? I, that was, I was very lucky because there's no way I would have made it but for him because um, my, my basics were almost spot on perfect. Um, you know, I, I can look through videos of me making mistakes and I made plenty of them, but... Very few of them were technical. They were all like, you know, do you come? Do you stay? Yeah, that sort of stuff. It was mm. never ball between the legs type because he he was he was a very good goalkeeper. Obviously, winning the league with Ipswich, and he became manager of clubs that I followed in South Africa. So the big one was Cape Town City, which uh, was a huge club then. A lot of of great players played there, like Jeff Hurst and Frank McClintock. We're going back a long, long time, but. Uh, Banksy came and played at the neighbours as well. So we had a good standard of football. And I was allowed at 12 to go and, and sort of collect the balls around the goal. And then if the keepers weren't ready, I'd jump in goals and the, the lads would have a few little soft shots at me. And, and um, as time went on, my, I got into the sort of reserve team at 16 and my dad would work on my basics, work on my basics, hour after hour. And then um, I had him to help me when I went to university because that was a first division team. And at 17, I got in the team and my first few games were just horrendous. <laughs> you know, at 17, I was skinny as could be and I got knocked all over the place. And my dad spent hour after hour with me. And, and then all of a sudden it clicked. Just got the timing right and got a little bit more strength and then did really well at, at, at university. So, yeah, you know, if you have a good coach, and again, I'm going back to the years and you don't have coach, you probably look at me. Um, Helen, I think, well, what's he talking about being lucky to have a coach? Back in those days, a lot of goalkeepers just, they just learned by having shots fired at them. Um, and my dad was constantly, this is your hands, these are your feet, this is what you do, this is how you move. Um, so when I, when I got my chance at United as a 20-year-old, I wasn't worried about my basics at all. I was just, I was just you know, obviously, let's, let's hope the game works well. Let's hope you can cope with all the pressure and take it from there. Moving to South Africa at six is something that you've mentioned happened. But I can imagine for a six-year-old, that's a really big deal. Did you have any siblings and people that went with you? Were you scared about doing that? Did you like it when you got there? Maybe I was six. I haven't a clue what I felt like at that stage. <laughs> I mean, you know what? When you're six, you go where the family goes, you fit in. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky that, that, that the schooling was good in South Africa. So I went to top schools, had a chance of an education. And my dad always said to me... Um, Make me one promise. He said, 
uh, he had battled as an ex-player that all he could do was soccer. So he went from coaching job to coaching job and, and it was a hard life, uh, as, as it is for many ex-footballers who are in coaching. You know, we always look at the top few who make a million pounds, but the majority struggle. He said, please get an education, give yourself a, an alternative to soccer because uh, you don't want to follow my life. And so that's why I did finish my degree at Manchester Polytechnic, which is now, I think, University of Manchester. And I did it solely for the reason that I, did, I never, ever wanted to be an ex-player who had no options because I'd seen and I'd been in that locker room in that dressing room in South Africa with ex-pros from England who were finishing their career in South Africa. And they were all asking the same question. What do I do now? I have no other skills. I left school at 14. Um, and it's a scary, it's a scary sp space to go through for most footballers because, uh, you know, most of them don't make a million dollars. Most of them yeah. retire. And if, if you're in the third division, you've got to go and get a job straight away. What skills do you have? Other than soccer, you don't have any other skills. You can't suddenly start mm -hmm. up as a, you know, as a, a an accountant or something at 33. So, uh, you know, my dad saw that and he he wanted for me to have options, and that's why I pushed, I pushed to finish my degree in Manchester. So you started your degree at Wits University. Um, is it physics you did? Yeah, it was engineering initially at Wits, which Stevie Koppel then uh, nicknamed Half Wits when I arrived. <laughs> so this is Gary, he finished his degree at Half Wits and, uh, and that sort of stuck from then onwards. So I, I sort of got, I, I got to understand the humour very quickly because in yeah. South Africa, we, we don't have that humour, but I'd heard it in the locker room from the English expats and straight away I was getting hammered in the, in the dressing room. But yeah. <laughs> Um, the only degree Manchester Poly offered part-time was maths or physics, and, and I had to do it part-time. My dad insisted with Dave Sexton that I had a clause written into my contract that allows me every Wednesday off to study. And again, what happened on Wednesdays midweek was we'd go to the baths in, I think, Blackpool. So the lads would hop on the bus, go to, we didn't have all the facilities they have today. So you had to go to the actual baths to get a, a hot sauna or something. And I took that day off to go to, to um, UMIST or, or Manchester Poly. Yeah. And again, it didn't sit well with the lads. They were like, seriously, you know, we're a team. And, and him, big, big loudmouth South Africans off to university to do what? And, but I managed to finish my physics degree. I wrote my finals on tour in Hong Kong in 84. We played the, the one night. And then the following morning, I was up early and had to go to uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic. And they'd flown the papers over. And then they obviously put me in a room and... I got to write the exams and I, I barely scraped through. I mean, it was so difficult being on tour and, and writing exams and trying to explain to the lads why you were doing all of this. I, I would like to think they look back now and go, you know, fair dues to him. He got mm. himself some, some education, which he could use after football. But at the time, they were just looking at me like, this is one loony son of a bitch. Well, how do we work with this guy? You know? Have you ever used that degree since? No. I mean, the lads at the time, the lads at the time, every time the ball went past me, they go, you idiot, can't you work out the velocity and the trajectory? And I just, I, but, um, but what, what it did for me was it gave me the confidence to, to go on and do further studies. And I did an MBA through Henley in Oxford when I was about 35. Um, I, I made a lot of money out of my testimonial, England against Manchester United in, in 87, and I invested in property in London, which was the best advice I could get, and I did it two months before the property crash of 87, so I ended up losing a ton of money, mm -hmm. and I was so pissed off with the world, and I'd done everything right, made all the money, uh, lost most of it, that I went and studied an MBA because I couldn't figure out how I got this wrong, and that MBA has stood me in good stead ever since, and I've done set up businesses and strategies and, um, and it's, 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 it's good to go into a meeting 
having confidence that people aren't going to bamboozle you with finances mm-hmm. and strategies. So it was, a, it was an MBA well worth doing. Yeah, of course. Okay, so football. Why a goalkeeper? Because my dad was the keeper, because I was useless with my feet. I tried to play centre-half once and... <laughs> I got subbed after 10 minutes, I think. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was just... I, it's not for everyone, Maisie, is it? It's, it's no, not, no. No, I wanted to be a centre-forward, but I just ended up at the back. Because you weren't good enough for scoring goals, were that, you? Exactly, yeah. The yeah. <laughs> well, I was even worse than you. I couldn't play either centre-forward or centre-half. And, you know, you're six foot two. I was very agile. Um, and, I mean, I, I represented my province, I guess you call it county, back in mm. England from the time I was 12. So clearly I had a talent, I had, a, I had a, um, a love for the game and a love for that position. And it, you know, looking back, I wouldn't advise people to be a goalkeeper because I think it's the most unforgiving position probably in any sport. But what it taught me, it taught me to handle any pressure. And you know, when, when I lost all that money in, in, my, you know, in, in London, um, in, it's very easy to go into a spiral and think, wow, you know, I should be sitting back with a million dollars in the bank account and never having to work. And here I am getting up at four in the morning, going to a radio station. But it, it taught me how to grind away. I, I take, took so many knocks as a keeper, mentally, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, you know, as much as physically. And I think the one thing you will get from goalkeepers throughout the world is throughout life afterwards, they will keep bouncing back because that's what you have to do to survive as a keeper. How did you, how did you move oh, your trial at United come about? Who would you plan oh, for? Sorry, you, you asked me. You asked me that question, and for some reason, I didn't answer it. It's all I, right. I'll I, keep asking. <laughs> <laughs> who, was you, who was you playing for? In so this is in Joburg, isn't it? Johannesburg. Yeah, I was at I yeah. was at Wits University. Um, I'd had two seasons there, and in my second season, I got represented or chosen to represent South Africa. Um, I didn't play, which is why I was allowed to play for England later on. Um, but uh, there was uh, my, my, my manager was in fact a guy called Eddie Lewis, who was a Busby babe in 58 and um, he just turned to me one day and said, hey, if you, if you can represent South Africa at 18 years of age, you, you must have a chance. So I went over to, to Holland initially um, because I thought England would be, would be a bit too tough and, um, and I speak Dutch coming from South Africa um, and I got a couple of offers to stay and then I went to Hamburg in Germany and again, they were like, yeah, we can put you on a, on a youth contract. And I went, I'm not, I'm not you know, traveling no. 6,000 miles for that. And I, this is the truth. And a lot of people have, have said to me, this is a BS story, but it's not, it's the truth. I was sitting with this, this, um, this agent who was taking me around and I had a football magazine as a shoot back in those days. Mm-hmm. And I had a picture of Alex Stepney and it said, Alex is 35. We're looking for someone to take over. And I phoned my dad and I said, one last shot before I come back home. Do you know Dave Sexton? He goes, yeah, yeah, played against him. I'll make a call. So he phones me back, my dad, and says, meet Dave Sexton in London. They're going to play against West Ham. He'll take you back to Manchester and give you a trial. And so I met at the hotel, and Martin Bucken came out, and I'm stood in this fancy hotel in London. I said, Mr. Bucken, name's Gary Bailey. Dave Sexton said, come here. He's going to take me to the game. And he turns to me, and he said, yeah, you and every other fan, and walked straight past me. And I went, what was that? <laughs> Because I'd no, I'd no idea that there was such a fan base and the fans would come up. And yeah. So I stood there like an idiot until Dave Sexton came. And then he said, oh, you're Roy's son. Come on, put me on the bus. And I, I sat with the lads and, and, and one of them, I'm sitting on the bus and I'm so excited and I'm 19 years of age. And someone said, is the post office tower somewhere here? And it was right there, you know, the typical wind-up. And yeah. I dived straight in. You went for it. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I watched the lads. I think we won 3-1 at, at West Ham, Upton Park, and came back and had a trial. Um, 
And Alex came to watch me play, Alex Stepman. Him and Dave Sexton decided that I was worth keeping. Um, so they offered me a contract. My dad said, put that one day a week at university in, which I did. And my very first day at the cliff, I walk in and they give me a space in the third, third team dressing room. And the guy next to me turns to me. Oh no, on the way in, some guy passes me. He goes, are you Gary? I went, yeah. He says, thank you very much. I went, what are you thanking me for? He said, I've been here five years as a goalkeeper. And you come along and I'm the guy they throw out. And I went, wow, that was a bit harsh. So I go and sit down and the guy says, my best mate's just been kicked out because of you. He said, if you're not a good goalkeeper, I personally will sort you out. I thought, what a lovely welcome. Who were these? They were like youth team players, under, you know, U17s, wow. under 17s. I know, that was my welcome to United. So I knew straight away that I was going to have a tough time. Yeah. So basically you left South Africa to go to Holland just to see if you could get a trial and you ended up at Manchester United about, what, three days later? Oh, no, you went to Hamburg, sorry. Yeah. And then you ended up at Manchester United. So you left South Africa with no aspirations to actually get to Manchester United. I didn't think it was possible. And, and as I say, it was, a, it was a last chance. I spent about a week in Holland, four or five days Hamburg, went to United. And it's one of those where I thought, you know what, if you've, if you've tried and you haven't succeeded, go back, play for South Africa, finish a degree, move on. Um, and I played at Everton in the reserves and that's when, and the following morning, Dave Sexton called me in the office and I thought he was going to give me the normal, thanks for coming. We should yeah. add well, not bad, stay in touch, all that. And he just said to me, we're very impressed. Do you want to, you want to join us? Here's a four year contract. And I was like, wow. And then you think you've made it because you're like, wow, I'm at United. And then you realize there's five goalkeepers there and you're number five. And that's <laughs> when the work begins to sort of grind your way up the pecking list, you know, to the top. And it was only through a whole bunch of lucky situations that I even got a chance to play in the first team. Can you remember the five goalkeepers in front of you? Steps over would have been number one, would it? Yeah, pa Paddy yeah. Roach, number two. Paddy Roach. And then, I, I, to be honest with you, I can't. They were youth no. team goalkeepers. Yeah. Um, a couple of lads in the same situation as me, all vying for either the A team or whatever. Um, yeah. But they were the big two. And when Stepney got injured, uh, Paddy stepped in. And uh, Paddy had a bit of a nightmare. Um, and they actually were going to sign Jim Blythe from Coventry, who was a good keeper. And he failed the fitness test on the Friday. And I was at the training ground. <clears throat> and I already phoned my dad and said, look, because he thought I might have a chance. And I said, no, they've just signed Jim Blythe, which means I'm like, you know, I'm so way down the pecking order. I said, I've got another month uh, here before my first year's up. And said, I'm, I'm coming home. And um, as we're coming off the pitch, Dave walks across to me, Dave Six, and he says, you're playing tomorrow. I said, what do you mean? You've just signed Jim Blythe. He says, no, deal fell through. He basically gave me that wonderful line. He said, we have no other goalkeepers. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're in. And that was it. And I thought, you know what? If I never do anything else in my life and I play one game for United, back in the days when they were all standing and that crowd was pumping, I thought, that's me happy. I'll die happy. You were a big fan of George Best. I've heard you talking about before as well. Ah, Bestie was, Bestie was sensational. And I, I just loved him as a person. But uh, Did you grow up watching Manchester United then? Yeah, we didn't have TV back then. So my memory of Bestie was in 73, they played a match against Sheffield United. Sheffield United had gone top of the league. Uh, Tony Curry was playing really well. And I remember my dad um, listening to it on the radio. And I, I don't know, I was all of, of 12 or something then. And, and it's just the sound of... And you're 6,000 miles away. And you're trying to picture in your head what's going on. I remember Bestie got the ball and ran through the entire team. And they won 2-0. And I thought, wow, that, that's the ultimate. And then about six, seven years later, 
1980, 81, uh, we were playing in Iceland on tour and Bestie was um, one of the star players for the Icelandic team. Uh, and he joined us at Manchester Airport and we were all there with our blazers and everything else. And he walked in with his jeans and T-shirt, looked a million dollars, you know, all bronze <laughs> from, from living in L.A. He had Miss World Mary Stavon on his arm. And all of us so-called stars of United, we just sat there with our jaws open going, <laughs> holy <laughs> hell, now you are talking about a superstar. And the training the following morning, he asked if he could train with us on this pitch in Iceland. Um, and I was there talking with Frank Stapleton, Kevin Moran, uh, Brian Robson, and we were all saying, right, first chance we get, give him a real solid tackle. Because, you know, he's been in LA, he's probably been taking it easy. And we try to kick him. And I mean, when I say kick him, not injure him, but just let him know that we were around. And we just couldn't get him. And I'm talking about Robert. I'm talking about Brian Robson, Frank Stapleton, top, top, top players. You know, we couldn't get him. And at the end of the match, we actually gave him a little ripple as he walked off. Because even, even having not played for four or five years, he was still head and shoulders above anything we'd ever seen in England. And he promised Ron Atkinson that he would come and play for us. And we were so excited. Next thing I heard, he was, you know, on the bottle in London somewhere and, and he didn't ever come back. And that was such a pity. Mm. Is that where you got the inspiration for you to marry a Miss Universe, Dan? Ah. Hey, hey, guys, we've done our research, pal. Oh, I'm hey. impressed. I'm impressed. <laughs> hey. The yeah, first time you... we've ever said that on a podcast. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Gee. Um, I actually dated Miss UK for a while in, oh. in uh, yeah, in fact, if you look at pictures of the 83 um, FA Cup final, there's pictures of myself and her holding the FA Cup. Um, but with, with, with Michelle that I'm married to now, you know, I think she knew a lot about David Beckham and the money he'd made. And I think she made the terrible <laughs> assumption that I had the same level of money. And by the time she got married, it was like, okay, doll, this is my actual bank account. You can take off all those zeros. They don't exist. <laughs> oh, bro. Bro. But, but she's, you know, she's lovely. We, we worked together in 2010 during the world cup in South Africa on TV. She'd been divorced four years. So did I, and, um, we just hit it off and just loved my time with her. Um, you know, second marriage has been a huge, huge success, and I have three wonderful kids from the first marriage. So, Brilliant. yeah, you know, it's it's just happy days. Hard life, Paul. Hard life. <laughs> going back to the football again, Sam. Sorry, were you going to say something? I was going to say I was going about football. I was going to ask about your debut. Yes, that's what I was going to ask about. Tell us about your debut then for Manchester United. It's just one of those. It's still the best day uh, in my in my sort of footballing career because you step up from the reserves. I had about you know four or five matches in the reserves while Paddy had moved up into the first team and done reasonably well. And so walking out uh, behind Martin Bucken in front of that crowd, when you've only played in front of five, 10,000, and even in South Africa, maybe 15, 20, to walk out at Old Trafford in front of 80,000 in the days when they were all standing. And the very first song they sang, well, there's only one, Gary Bailey, which was the only song back then, to be fair. There were no other songs. <laughs> there was only one Brian Robson. There was whatever. But they sang my name first. And I just remember thinking, this is everything I have worked for. Um, and was against Ipswich, funny enough, where I was born. And went well, kept a clean sheet. Was you nervous? I wasn't too nervous because... Did, did you get nervous before games? Yeah, I got, but yeah. not badly nervous. Not, no. not, not panic nervous. Yeah. Just, you know, no. on edge. But the, all the lads had said to me, son, just go and have fun. Sorry, this is... Um, Delete, where are we now? Did, have I cut you off? No. There you go. No, no, You're no, still no. back. Sorry, somebody was trying to get through. Um, the lads had all said, just, hey, son, go out there and play. They didn't expect anything from me. The manager said the same. He said, hey, just, just go and have a good time. 
Um, and we won 2-0 and afterwards BBC wanted to interview me. Um, and Louis Edwards, Martin's dad, was still chairman. He came through and he said, well done, son, this is excellent. And BBC wanted to speak to you going upstairs. Uh, all the lads are like, wow, BBC, that's fantastic. So I rush over, I have a quick shower, I get my jacket on, I got to get my tie, I start putting it on, and I realize the buggers have cut the thing in half. There's <laughs> only about so much time. <laughs> so I went, okay, okay, I get it, all right. So I had to button up my jacket. So it was, I looked like I was being strangled because I only had about an you know, inch of tie that I could show. <laughs> Um, and then um, afterwards, the press, on, press said, can we have pictures of you? And, and I said, yeah, very naively, yes, of course. And they gave me an umbrella and they were like, you know, Gary singing in the rain. And three days later, we went to Everton and got beat 3-0. I got smashed by Bob Latchford. He hit me <laughs> every time I got the ball. He kicked me. And they took the same picture and they, have, they had something like drowning in the rain as the headlines. And I went, okay. Now I'm beginning to learn the tough side of, of football yeah. and, and you, I just can't be that outward going person and tell people what I think I really have to start being a little bit more sort of streetwise. Who were the, you, you mentioned how it was very difficult for you coming over, a real culture shock, I suppose. You're used to life on the beach, life swimming. You're coming here, you're inside a lot. Who kind of was the most welcoming to you when you first come into the changing room? Um, I guess the, the, the English guys more than anyone else, Stevie Coppel was helpful, um, Ray Wilkins when he joined, but very much left to your own. I mean, yeah. it, it, there was no help. I remember Tommy Kavanagh, the assistant manager, said, I've got one bit of advice for you that after I've been in the team about sort of four or five weeks, and I said, oh, what is that? You know, really hoping for something helpful. He said, you've got to get married. And I said, come again? He said, my only advice is you've got to get married. I said, I'm 20 years of age. What are you talking about? He said, no, everybody else gets married young. He said, you want a wife to look after you, to cook for you, and make sure you don't go out gallivanting at night. And he said, you'll be a better soccer player. And I went, <laughs> I, don't, I don't give a damn what you say. That's not how I roll. I'm not, it was the worst bit of advice I'd ever been given the way I could see it. Um, but, I, but looking back, I know what he meant. He meant just mm. you're going to come under so much pressure that you just need someone just to help you get through the pressure and help you deal mm. with the difficulties. But again, it, it wasn't, wasn't how I saw the world. And, and so I remained the only single guy on the United team for about, well, I don't know, five or six years, which uh, again, <clears throat> used to you know, have these, these hot women that, that I was dating in the, in the sort of lock, in the, in the player's lounge afterwards. And I could see all the wives looking at me going, bad influence. We don't want him around. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Did that make it difficult though? Because at that time, you know, the couples they socialised a lot, didn't they? Together. Yeah. Did you feel a little bit like an outsider because you didn't have that, maybe? Helen, I was an outsider from the moment I arrived. It just became more of an outsider, seriously. And it wasn't it wasn't anyone's fault. I mean, I I came with my character and my background. They were, you know, we're going back to the days when there weren't foreigners playing. Like I say, mm. an Irish an Irish player was a foreigner. Um, the, the lads didn't understand me. I didn't read the same newspapers as them. I didn't have the same thinking process as them. I went and studied and went to universities in the afternoon. I'd, I'd gone from being busy, busy at university in soccer to training for two hours and sitting around. And I, I couldn't play pool, couldn't play darts. I wasn't going to drink at lunchtime. And just everything just went against the grain for the lads. So no, I didn't socialize with them. And um, I never really fitted in. I mean, I'm, uh, in my testimonial, I invited the whole team for, you know, for a party afterwards. Only one player turned up, Gordon Strachan. 
but there just wasn't that bond and it wasn't, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't their fault, it wasn't my fault. Um, I wasn't going to compromise, which, you know, I'm pleased I didn't because you are who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, the lads didn't didn't find any common ground with me. And like you say, if I had a wife, maybe there would, the women would have got together and it would have been easier. But I don't think the women wanted me around because, um, as I say, I was a single guy. And, and as much as I, you know, I was very careful about it, I just think they just felt I might be a bad influence. And I don't want to throw the guys under the bus 30 years later, but trust me, when on the tours, I wasn't, I wasn't the bad influence. What <laughs> <laughs> goes on tour? <laughs> well, uh, one, we did get a story from um, Clayton Blackmore about you as a teammate. He told us that, I think it was on his debut, he just sat quietly in the corner in the changing room while you and Gordon McQueen came to blows. He said it was like two giants fighting and he was terrified to get involved. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a, a situation that caught me by surprise as well. We'd, we were 2-0 up at Sunderland and lost 3-2. And then we went to Notts Forest, we were 2-0 up and we lost 3-2 again. And and I'm not saying I wasn't culpable. I, I probably could have done more. But, you know, I walked in afterwards and I had to say something. And I just said, how the hell can we not be picking up runners and... And Gordon in particular, Gordon's a lovely guy and he's a big, big, you know, great header of a ball, but he, was, he wasn't good tactically. And once Paul McGrath stepped in, we were a different team and, and, and we could have and should have won the league with Paul McGrath there. Uh, with Gordon, he was all over the place. And, and I walked in and said, we've got it. We've got to be more organized. We've got to talk to each other. We've got to communicate. And I, I was sort of aiming at Gordon and he knew it. Um, and he just stood up and said, what chance have we when we've got an effing coward in goals? And I went, you said, what? And so I got up and walked across to him. And I was going to engage in a semi-civil, uh, you know, university-type debate about this. And he just flew off his, he flew off his <laughs> chair and punched me before he even got a word in. Off his chair, bang, hit me in the face. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so I now try and, and try and fight back. But I wasn't born to be a fighter. So, you know, Gordon's off the streets of Glasgow. I mean, he knew exactly how to fight. So I'm trying to get a punch in. Ron Atkinson steps in. I catch, I catch the manager on the back of the head. He's turning, looking at me. Everyone's <laughs> holding us all apart. And, um, and afterwards, um, you know, it, it was a very sort of, wasn't a good feeling between myself and Gordon. Um, but I accepted it as, as part of the game and a, and a good way to get the frustrations out. But a mate of mine in Manchester said, Gary, what you don't understand is all these lads have had to fight. They've come up the hard way. They've fought in the streets. He said, you're one of these sort of his kids at private school, he said, you don't know how to fight and you best learn very soon because the, you know, the players are hitting you, the big center forwards are hitting you every single game and they're gunning for you and you're just taking the hits. So <clears throat> I went to downtown Manchester and joined a, um, a street fighting class there. A guy called Steve Powell, who was uh, sixth Dan or something other. And I learned how to fight. And I'm not saying I was a good fighter, but I learned how to kick and how to throw a punch and to hurt somebody. And, um, and, and so, you know, I got in the dressing room as I started to learn this and I thought, I best let everybody know. So I'm like, oh, I'm doing a bit of karate and I'll take somebody out. And a few weeks later, we were playing Villa and Colin Gibson, who later joined us, he broke through and I came running out the box and I mistimed it. And I went to, I went to kick with my left foot and the ball hadn't reached me. So I did like a karate kick, you know, where you go with one <laughs> foot, bring it down and go with the other. And I caught mm. the ball and Colin Gibson so hard and I did what I never do. I straight leg like you would in karate, which you don't do in soccer. I straight legged and I heard this crack and I thought I've, I've probably broken my leg and I landed and I was fine. I looked on the ground. I've broken Colin Gibson's ribs <laughs> and I hadn't meant to. 
And so we, we, we came off after the game and the lads were all in the dressing room. Like, I think we won 2-0. They were like, Gaz, you broke his ribs. Did you mean to do that? And I didn't, but I turned around and I said, damn right I did. And if that happens again, I'll take the next one down with me. And from that moment on with Maisie, I got left alone. The lads were like, that goalkeeper's crazy. Plus crazy. he does this karate crap. Leave him alone. <laughs> and that was that. And I was, I was cool. That's brilliant. That's quality. Well, yeah. What year was this, Gary? How long into your journey in Manchester United did you join the street fighting club? <laughs> I think Gordon and I got into that, that fight in about... 83 um plus my, i think it was was 83 ish and we'd had a few words already because we played the league cup final against liverpool and lost 2-1 in extra time and i'd let <clears throat> a dodgy goal in the first goal it skipped off the turf and i should have done better um and gordon had made a few mess ups so between the two of us we were at each other a little bit to try and you know and we were desperate to win uh, year after year we'd sort of finished second and third and we're always top four, which today mm. would be considered good. But back then, it was only one thing. You had to win the league. You had to do what they did in 68. It was pressure. It was, it was 17 years since we won. Then it was 20 years since we won and it just kept on going. So, you know, we, we just had this constant battle to try and, and, and win a league title. And I think it happened after we lost to, um, to Liverpool. And fortunately, 83, we won the FA Cup final, which was our first bit of silverware. And thank heavens we did win it because I don't think I don't think as a team we'd have survived another season without winning some silverware. We mm. just we'd become over desperate. We'd become angry at each other and, and angry about everything because we knew we were a good team, a really, really good team. And yet every year we were we were good. Somebody just seemed to be that little touch better. What do you remember about 1979 when, of course, you didn't win the FA Cup final? But for you, how big of an occasion was that? Your first FA Cup final with the club. I love the way you phrase it. You didn't win it. Yeah, we lost it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's no other way to put it, I know, is there? <laughs> I know. I know. You're 100% spot on. We'll talk about the ones that we did win after yeah. this. <laughs> you know, it was an incredible occasion. I mean, the FA Cup then was, it's, it's not the same now. It's not even close. It's probably as big as a European Champions League final is now because the entire mm. country came to a stop, to an absolute standstill. And, um, you know, as, as a 20-year-old playing in that cup final, I had Pat Jennings in the other goal, who I admired so much as a top-class keeper. And I'd done well in the semis. You know, we'd beaten Liverpool, who were the European champions. We'd beaten them. I'd had a couple of good games on the way there. So, but that's all forgotten, you see. Uh, mm. um, you only remember what players do in the biggest games at, at the top level. And, um, you know, the, everyone will remember the last few minutes, the cross that I didn't get. Yes, it took a slight deflection, but at the end of the day, it's up to me to get the ball, and I didn't. And um, it was a huge blow. But what it did do was it made the next season so much better for me because um, I took a big knock. Everyone looked around me and said, well, it's the goalkeeper's fault we didn't win. I think Sammy McElroy has never forgiven me because his equaliser was just world-class, and he probably thought that was enough to go on to win it. Um, but it toughened me up, and we came back, and we had a fantastic 79-80, where, as I say, we were in with a chance of winning the title right down to the final game. So in some senses, it was a good thing. Had we won it, had I made a good save or something, I might have got carried away with myself. Instead, I got an absolute smack of note um, and a realisation. How did you cope with that? <sighs> Just ex accept it, it. I mean... Did you, did you speak to your dad about it or did you speak to anybody about it? Or yeah, I just spoke to my dad. Of, just get on with it sort of thing. What was the advice of your dad? Exactly that. Just get on with it. That's that's goalkeeping. You're yeah. going to have days when it works and days when it doesn't. And 
you know, at least I was in the first team. At least I played in the cup final. I always sort of in my own mind turned things to find the positive. Yeah. And so for me, it was, you know, I've, not, I've now played half a season for United. I've proven that I'm a, you know, I'm a decent keeper, played in the cup final, represented England at 21 level. Um, so I, I always kept that in my mind that even if this is all I ever do, I've, I've done a hell of a lot in yeah. terms of what I dreamt of doing. And that's the way, and that's why I said, that's why goalkeepers are generally mentally tough because you have to keep reminding yourself that, you know, you can get through this. You can, you know, even what now with David De Gea, he's, He's got to keep himself positive. He's got to remind himself of the good times. And that's what keepers have to do. Well, I was going to ask, Yeah. how do you think you would cope if you were playing today with those kind of moments because of the scrutiny that exists because of social media? I mean, not that long ago, we all saw Alisson miss the ball. Yeah. And that clip has just been replayed and replayed and parodied and memed and gifted. And yeah. it, it just beca- it takes its own life, just that one mistake. Do, do you think that would add to that level of pressure or could you just shut that out what do you reckon i think you learn to shut it out i mean i would love to have played today because i didn't enjoy the constant physical battering we got back in the day and it was every single high ball you got smacked and hit and i just mm-hmm. felt that wasn't that wasn't a skillful thing that was just the biggest guy hitting you um and and also there was no support you were on your own whereas today the manager will give you a rest he'll He's aware if you're under stress, he'll give you yeah. a couple of days off. Um, you know, you get and also you get paid so much, you can you don't have to worry about it. Uh, back in the day, you know, I played with broken fingers. I've strapped fingers together because if you didn't play, you didn't get your match appearance money, you didn't get your bonus, and the chances are someone would step in and take the place. You never get back in. So it was mentally, I think, a lot harder, physically a lot harder. But I, I do I do agree with you that that in terms of everyone knowing your mistakes. That that is the exposure side of it that is a lot tougher today. But it was even tough then. I mean, if we were playing badly, I've walked down Manchester in the centre down Deansgate and had people spit at me. And I like to say they were City fans, but they weren't. They were United fans. But you know, <laughs> the, the, you know, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you know, little comments and a bit yeah. of spitting. And yeah, it's, it's if you're going through bad times, people can get upset, and especially if you try and defend yourself. And and of course, City fans are always nasty and relishing in, in United not doing well. So I think it was just as tough back then in a different way. But you, but you are right. Social media-wise, you can get hammered if you make mistakes today. Yeah. Wow. 1981, Big Ron came in. What was, your, what was your life like under Big Ron? Enjoy him? Yeah, loved him. Loved him to bits. Um, thought he was awesome, brought a, a whole energy in. Um, I've only ever had one criticism about Ron's period and and. and it was. I just felt tactically we weren't as as astute as we could have been. It was very much go out and play your football and we'll win. And and I was always like, no, boss, can we not stay and go over free kicks? Can we not play? And no, 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 just go and play. Ultimately, I don't know if that would have made a difference, but um, that was my only criticism. He wouldn't let me have a goalkeeper coach. He was like, no, you don't need them. And I'm like, yes, I do, but I never got one. Um, so, but as a guy, I loved him to bits. I loved his energy, and I was gutted we didn't win the league under him because. We should have done the start of the 86 season. I think we won the first 10 games. Yeah. Uh, we had a really good side, really good side. And Robert got injured. I busted my knee with England. We sold Mark Hughes and the season just petered out. And I just, I just wish I could have taken, you know, something of 83 and something of 85 and something and put it all together in one good season like Villa did. In 81, Villa used 14 players. Sweaty. They used 14 players to win the league. No one got injured in the entire season. The season after, they were rubbish. 
you know, in all of our seasons, Robbo always got injured. So we'd miss him. And then we sold Ray Wilkins and we sold Joe Jordan and we sold Mark Hughes. And you just feel that, you know, if just one of those seasons had have just gelled, we'd have mm -hmm. walked away with the league. But so, and then when Ron um, got fired, he had a, a goodbye sort of uh, barbecue at his house and he invited the entire team. And only three of us turned up, myself, Robbo, Norman. And he had a guy there to park the car and he had all this food and, I sat with him and I, I remember saying to him, you know what, this is not right. This is in football, football's a hard game, but there's some mm. things that I don't agree with. And the lads not turning up, many of them signed by Ron, didn't turn up. And that, that soured my, my feeling with the rest of the, the squad. I really felt that um, that was a bad, really bad. I can understand one or two players not coming because they might not like Ron, but yeah. only three out of the entire squad. I just felt we'd lost a little bit of our soul there, United, and I blame the players for that. That was a very unpleasant uh, sort of response to Ron Atkinson. Maybe the thought, because you were going to be there, like, I'm not going there because Big Gazzy's there. <laughs> it's going to break my ribs. <laughs> yeah, it'll break our ribs, yeah. <laughs> Gaz, you're going about the, um, the, obviously the heartbreak in 79, mm -hmm. but you did go on to win two FA Cup finals, 93, uh, uh, sorry, 83 and 85. What were, the, yeah. what were those like? Yeah, they were great because we were desperate to win something. 83, of course, I'm remembered for the save in the final minute, which is, yeah, it's a decent save. I made a lot better than that. But people rem remember you for the winning goal or, the, mm -hmm. you know, in your case, a, a goal line tackle or whatever. So they remember yeah. me for that. And to be fair, if that goes in, it was the last kick of the match. So we'd have lost to Brighton, which would have been a huge disgrace. And then there would have been a dressing room fight between me, Gordon, and probably the entire team. Um, we, we, we came back four days later, one at 4-0, which is what, you know, which was a fair reflection of the difference in ability. And I really thought we'd kick on in 83. And we, we you know, we got a good uh, UEFA Cup run. We beat, uh, we beat Maradona and um, Barcelona. We drew with Juventus and lost by one goal away, which was a, a decent effort. Um, but we just couldn't kick on the extra level. 85, mm. we got back. Great match, Paul McGrath, world class. Norman's goal, oh, yeah, unbelievable. Did you feel? Did you feel a save against Smith in '83? Did you feel like a justification that you, you know, justified yourself for the slip in '79, or was it just a? Yeah, yeah. Because um, you be, become from like the villain to the hero, then didn't you? Yeah, and neither was that bad or that good. I mean, the cross mm. was a difficult one. Arthur Alberson hadn't covered behind me. So you can, but ultimately I'm responsible. Again, I'm responsible for the save against Gordon Smith, but you come out at feet. You just try and keep your eyes open. It hits. And because you keep your eyes open, you see it spin and you get on the rebound. All the keepers yeah. come out, eyes closed. You don't get to make the second save. Again, it's not the greatest save in the world. You'll, you'll see that in the English Prem week in and week out. But you get remembered for the saves that you, you know, that happen in big games. And, and that's why if you play long enough, you will make a save in a big sure. game that defines you. Um, yeah. I just wish, you know, like a lot of goalkeepers, I wish some of the saves I'd made that aren't remembered, I'd made them in a cup final because we've all pulled yeah. something out of the yeah. top corner. We've all made a point blank save, but it's only ever remembered if you do it in a massive match. Was your, was your mum and dad at the any finals? Yeah, yeah. 79, yeah. they were there. 79, they were interviewed on the pitch beforehand. So if I wasn't nervous as it was, they, they linked up live, <laughs> live on BBC, and I'm yeah. sat there with all the lads. No. And they say, right, <laughs> and first we're going to go to Gary Bailey's parents and, and sisters who are on the pitch at, 
at Wembley and I just sat there and went, oh no, I just, I do not need this with the lads, you know. <laughs> My dad's coming on saying he's a, he's a very confident young chap, he'll be fine. And the lads are me going, yeah, right, he will be. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it's all part of it. I, that's why when I watch the FA, it's such a disappointment when teams put out a second string side and yeah. it, it just doesn't have... I don't know what, what you feel, Maisie, growing up in it, but I grew up on watching all of those matches. That's all we ever did. Oh, all huge. we ever did. Yeah, absolutely. Gary, I just want to ask you about your relationship with the old, other goalkeepers at the club throughout your time. Did you have good relationships with those teammates? Not really, Helen, because you're fighting for the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. Alex Stepney was, was, was very helpful, even when he retired. I phoned him up a couple of times for a bit of advice, and he was always... Very friendly. Um, Paddy Roach became my understudy once I got in the team, and then he left. I'm trying to think who was in. Jeff Whelan's came in from Birmingham, but they're all and Stephen Pears, but they were all after my job. So you know, you you train together, you work yeah. together, but you don't really socialise together. Um, in England, Peter Schultz, uh, Ray Clements, Chris Woods, um, Woodsy and I sort of roomed together. So we, you know, we became buddies. But all the others, uh, I'm fighting for their place. They don't want me to mm -hmm. in, to get it. Uh, when you work together, you will obviously work properly and you'll make sure that you give your fellow goalkeeper a good workout. But um, socially, no, uh, not even rooming together, to be fair. I, I used to room on my own a lot. Yeah. It's funny you mention that because we feel like, how many episodes have we done, guys? Nearly? 65, 70? Yeah, 60, 60 odd. So many people seem to have roomed with you. Yeah. Sorry, just, just just to go back, do you guys have a clue what you're doing? One of you said 55, one of you said 70, and one of you said 80 <laughs> podcasts. Do you know what day of the week it is over there? Not I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but so many people seem to have roomed with you. Yeah. Do you feel like you've roomed with a lot of different people or maybe this just is something that we have come across? Look, I, I don't know if they room with me because they wanted to or because nobody wanted to. I'm not quite sure which of the two it is. <laughs> All, all I know is that at the end, um, I used to room on my own uh, because I just had my own routines. I had my own, you know, there's certain TV sleep shows I'd like to watch. Yeah, I like to get to bed early, have a good sleep. Um, and, uh, you know, other other lads, that the Irish would share a room together, the Scots would share a room together. Mm. I, I, I was happy to share a room with anyone. I, it didn't bother me in the least, but I think towards the end of it, um, they just said, "Look, just give the big, the big ugly goalkeeper his own room and keep him out of the way, so <laughs> so he doesn't cause any problems." Did you have a favourite roommate when you did room with people? I always wanted to like like Ray Wilkins was a lovely guy, um, and I enjoyed Ray because you know he just he didn't judge anyone, and he was he was one of these happy cockneys, and and his his missus was lovely, and. And occasionally they would, they would invite me out for dinner on my own and, and, and I, I enjoyed him. Frank Stapleton was a good, good guy to room with as well. I honestly didn't mind. I just, I just maybe just didn't share enough in common for the lads to want to room with me because, as I mm -hmm. say, you got lads from the same area rooming together. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this, the South African didn't quite... There wasn't anyone who wanted to hang out too much. It's bad enough being a goalkeeper and South African and the rest of it. So I sound, I sound like I need a psychologist, don't I? <laughs> it's okay, we're here. We're here. Uh, <laughs> what was life like for you mentally when you got injured? How difficult was that for you? It should have been a lot more difficult. But first time, I think I missed seven games in seven years. When I say missed, I was either injured or, or dropped for seven games in seven years. 
Uh, I don't even think I was dropped, to be fair. It was all injuries. And then I got the injury with England, messed it up yeah. at the World Cup, trying to get fit too quickly, came back, and, and my knee was really bad. And Robbo came back from England, from the Mexico World Cup. His shoulder was put out. Norman came back. So Robbo, Norman, and myself ended up on the treatment table for about six months. And that was when the, the team slid into, into all the trouble that got Ron, that got Ron sacked. And I think if you lose three of your, your stalwarts and down the spine of the team, you're always going to struggle. Um, but it was good fun. I mean, I just, I loved not having the stress of Saturday coming up and having to perform and, uh, you know, and, and having to, as a goalkeeper, you live not by your past like a striker does, how many goals you scored. You mm. live by your future. It's when's your next mistake and can you keep a clean sheet? And so I didn't have to worry about these things. And I'd never spent time in Manchester just chilling. It was always game, 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 four weeks break and then tour. And, and suddenly I was walking around Hale and Altrincham and just hanging out and going for a glass of wine somewhere and going out into Cheshire for a drive. And it was like, wow, so this is actually where I've been living the last eight, nine years, mm. you know? Um, and Robbo and Norman were great fun. And when the one time Robert brought, brought a pack of eggs in, so Norman and I sat. And these are days when you only had one physio. So you got, you got, you got treated in order, uh, in order of your seniority and how bad your, your, your injury was. <laughs> so um, the three of us were sat there, and those who were on short-term injuries got treated first. And, and Robert brings these eggs. So I go, what are you doing, Skipper? He goes, um, hey, got an egg each, right? And we're going to see how long you can chew on this egg without throwing it up. So he puts the whole egg in his mouth and you can hear this crunching going on and already my skin's crawling and crunches, crunches, crunches and eventually spits it all out. So he goes, right, 15 seconds. Right, Norman, you're up next. So Naza has a go and eventually he spits it out. They give it to me. I hadn't even felt the first crunch and I just went all over to me, McGregor, the physio. <laughs> and of course, Rob, Rob and them are crying on the floor laughing. And, and that was what we did for six months. We just... Um, uh, we had Alex. fun and we, we had a good giggle. We had, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a good laugh. And uh, and it was just sad to see, you know, what happened to Ron and the team. Um, but yeah, it was the first time in, in since I've been in England that I actually stopped thinking about the next game because basically I was playing two games a week, 60 games a year for, for eight, nine years. That's so fascinating. I think you're the only person that we've ever spoken to that's actually said they quite enjoyed being injured because you had a different perspective of what your life was in Manchester. It's really interesting take on it. Yes, yeah, it was huge pressure as a keeper as well. I mean, I I say to the young keepers that I coach here in Miami, you know, it'll toughen you up, and you're always you're always going to be judged on your next game. And I just felt mm. there was not a break. It wasn't a you know end of the season. There was an end of season tour, and they expected you to play well. Then you were on an England tour, and and I hadn't quite grown up in that same mentality. I guess if I'd have left school at fourteen. If being a goalkeeper for a top team was all I'd ever wanted, I would have kept going. But it wasn't a little bit like, I guess Eric Cantona was the same 10 years later. You know, when I retired, I was, I was pretty much, I had two more years in South Africa. But at 30, I was like, I'm done. I need to move on to something new. I need a fresh challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, now I look back and think, damn, why didn't I hang on and hang in as long as I could? Because only mm -hmm. when you're older do you see the privilege of playing at that level. But at the time, I was like, I just need a break from this eight years of of constant, you know, battling. And I got to got to know the lads a lot better and have more fun. And uh, you mentioned Clayton, Clayton, myself, and Kevin Moran at the end of of '87, just before when I'd retired, but I hadn't left. We did an end of season tour, and I remember finding a big turtle on the beach 
and going into Mickey Brown's room and putting this turtle in his bathtub. <laughs> and it was massive. And Clayton was helping me carry this thing. And we put it in Mickey, Mickey Brown's bathtub. And I just, I became a fun guy because I wasn't stressed about the next game. Mm. I was just having a giggle. I'd understood the British sense of humor by then. And I thought, you know what? It's my last few weeks. I'm going to take the out of as many guys as I possibly can before I go. <laughs> and it was just such a fun time. What else did you do? Uh, I, I, what were the other pranks? I uh, Just constantly winding the lads up. And uh, I can't think of any offhand now, but it was just a happy, it was a, I was a happy, fun person. And even Robert turned to me on the one occasion and he said, he said, you know what? You surprised me. I said, why? He said, when, when you got injured, I thought you were going to be as grumpy as all hell. I thought you were going to be arguing with everyone. I thought you were going to be scrapping. And he said, you know what? You've turned out to be a really fun guy. Uh, he said, I was really surprised because we thought you were a real grouchy, moody so-and-so. And, and <laughs> I, I looked back and I thought, no. And I looked back and I thought, you know what? That's, that's the pressure of being a goalkeeper for United. And I'm, I'm sure David must be going through similar things now because, mm. you know, you're always pushing for your back four to be tighter, to not concede that goal that, that loses a couple of points. And, and keepers take, we take it far too seriously sometimes because we don't have much to do in a game. We have four or five things. And if we don't get one of them right, we, we go over and over and over it. And I had videos. I was one of the first goalkeepers to keep videos of all my games. And I'd sit with Harry Gregg, who came and helped out for a little while as a goalkeeper coach. Great, great guy. And we'd sit and I'd go over it and I'd say, but my foot's there and it's not here. And he'd say, Gary, just relax. You know, worry where your foot is. It's not going to dictate everything. But in some mm. senses, it does. Your basics as a goalkeeper, you know, are very, very important. So no question that the likes of David De Gea is going through a lot of stress at the moment because that's, that's how you are as a keeper. Mm. Given how much you enjoyed those last few months when you were injured and the pressure was off and people like Robbo were saying what a fun guy you were, do you look back and think you've maybe found a better balance between those two mindsets when you played? Or actually, do you think you took it seriously and that's the reason you were there so long and the reason you won two FA Cups? Yeah, I think it's important to be serious. I, I would love there to have been sports psychologists back when I played. Um, I would love there to have been uh, people who'd looked after you when you joined the club. None of those things happened. Um, when I joined, I got put into a room with two other guys in Moss Side. Um, I was in the attic with no heating in the middle of winter and I had to catch two buses to the cliff and nobody gave a damn, not a flying damn. It was, it was just nobody, nobody cared. No one, no one bothered about when I was in the first team. No one sat with me like they would today and said, right, so how are your feelings? What are you, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing like that. I mean, I just, you know, the only lessons I learned was Joe Jordan in, in the first um, few months that I played. I made a mistake in one game. And he came in afterwards and Joe, Joe was tough. I mean, Joe took out his teeth and you looked at him and you went, Christ, thank heavens he's on my side. <laughs> and, um, and so he, he, had, he got hold of me after a game and I was only 20 and he had me up against the wall. He said to me, you just cost me my win bonus and I need that win bonus to feed my kids. Don't you ever do that again. And then put me down and walked away. And I went, holy crap. <laughs> so this, this was what life was like back then. And, um, Today, a sports psychologist would, would just make it easy if you were homesick. I, I got home once in eight years during the season. Wow. Uh, I, said, I said to Ron, please, I'm desperate to go home. And he said, I tell you what, we've got an FA Cup match against Blackburn on Saturday. He said, this Saturday, we play Arsenal, hop on a flight, come back Thursday. Uh, and if we lose, you never go again. And that was the only time in 10 years I got home um, other than during the off season, which was only three weeks because of 
to nationals. Mm. And I went to Cape Town. I lay on the beach. I got burned to a crisp. I came back on the Thursday, a Friday morning training. The lads are shooting at me, and every single shot was killing me. I was right. <laughs> and I, I couldn't show the pain. I could not show the pain. And on Saturday, we played Blackburn Rovers, and I was so pumped. I thought, if I, if I screw this up, I'll never get allowed to go home. And we won 2-0. I had a really good game, um, but was never allowed to go home again. Once, once in the 10 years I was there. And psychologically, you would never do that to a foreign player today, but that's no. just the way it was back then. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, when we spoke to Mickey Thomas, he obviously, well, he might call himself a foreign player coming from <laughs> Wales, but he said the same, how much he would have benefited from you know, a sports psychologist and he found life very difficult at Manchester United mentally. Yeah, Mickey, Mickey, Mickey really struggled. I remember once I walked in the boot room and I found him in the corner and I said, Mickey, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm hiding from Lou Macari. I said, why are you hiding? He said, he just, he won't leave me alone. He keeps taking the out of me. And, and he was, he was hiding from Lou. He, he wouldn't go out onto the pitch until we were about to start training because Louis, I mean, Louis was very clever. Louis is very sharp and he just picked on Mickey the whole time. Um, so I said to Mickey, I said, hang out with me. I'll, I'll try and look after you. So of course I would then, fight for the underdog and try and look after Mickey Thomas. But he, re- he really was, he's right. He was one of those softies. He, he couldn't think at the same speed as the Lou Macari's of the world. And, and, and he just, and you could see his confidence just doing this the whole time. And, um, and as you say, quite rightly, today a psychologist would have got a lot more from Mickey Thomas than, than, than we got from him. Mm-hmm. Tell us about when Sir Alex Ferguson came in then. What was your memories of that? Yeah, I, I was still injured at the time, and he came in the in the cliff and in the gym, and he introduced himself, and and I I was like, hmm, comes across really well, uh, has been incredibly successful. So let's watch how this goes. And I wasn't in the team to begin with, but I was I was able to watch from from a distance, and I just thought, you know what, he just does everything the way you should do it. He wasn't too loud. He wasn't too motivational. He wasn't too tough. He just seemed to have this. He called you out when it was right to call you out, and. And anyway, in the March, he, he, um, I think he arrived in November. By the March time, he um, called me into his office. He said, look, uh, uh, Chris Turner's injured. Um, how are you doing with your knee? I said, I'm running really well. Um, and I've been doing a little bit of shot stopping. He said, I think you can play this weekend. And I went, wow, okay, that's um, but sooner than I thought. But I said, you know what, Let, let's, let's give it a try. I'm happy. And so we played at Luton. Um, and I hadn't experienced him. And, and this hairdryer thing came up and the lads would not tell me what the hairdryer was. Um, and so we're 1-0 up at Luton, Kenilworth Road, and then the ball comes in. I start coming and I go, not mine. I shout away and Colin Gibson gets beat far post. 1-1, we go in half time. And um, so Alex walks up to me and said, and the goal? I said, well, I thought it was mine. Decided not to come shout for the defender. It's his job. He turns to, to Gibbo, walks up to him, puts his nose to his nose and starts screaming at him. And then I see the hair go back. And that's when the penny dropped because they hadn't told me about this. <laughs> and I remember thinking, whatever you do, do not laugh because now it's not a good So I just sat there, I sat there looking down, trying to say nothing. And uh, we go out for the second half and I'm, I'm the most senior player at the time. I think I was 28. And, um, and I'm just looking at Sir Alex, weighing all this up in my mind, trying to make head nor tail of it, you know? And as I walk out, he sees me looking at him and he calls me over and I said, uh, what was all that about? He goes, Gary, there, there, some, there, are, there are some players you need to scream at and some you need to talk nicely to. And he said, the key is to know the difference. And I went, holy shit. I have never heard any manager think that cleverly. All I'd seen was managers either scream at everyone 
or talk yeah. nicely to everyone. And as I'm going out for the second half, I'm thinking, wow, what is it about this? There's something really special going on with this guy. I played four more games and, and I couldn't get out of bed after the first one. My knee was just finished. So I never got to play more than five games for him. But uh, when, he, when, uh, when he got the doctor's note that I needed to retire, he called me in. And he said, I'm gutted for you. He said, I had to finish my career at a similar age. He said, I'm gutted for you. He said, is there anything I can do? And I'm like, yeah, that's what every manager says. I went, no. He says, no, I'm serious. Anything. If you want to stay here as a goalkeeper coach, I've got a job for you. If you want to, you know, if anything I can do, I mean it. And I went, wow, he actually does mean it. He really is. Yeah. He really does care. Um, and unfortunately, I made a bad decision. I decided to go straight back to South Africa because I was still homesick. I had a year's testimonial, Maisie. I could have spent a year doing box and dines and adding something to my yeah. uh, little nest egg. And instead, I just bolted for South Africa and lost it all in the crash of 87. So uh, one of my big regrets was not to stay longer at United. But um, And to what see was, him... Guys, what, what was that? I know, I know you, the gaffer pulled you to one side and said, you know, that, that's it. But what was that feeling like at 29, knowing that your career was over? Did you... I don't know, because I, I never got to that point where an injury finished my career. What was it like for you? Because you're at your peak then, 29. Yeah maybe, yeah. maybe not even in your peak yet for a goalkeeper. Yeah. yeah, I just played a couple of matches for England at last. Shilton was beginning to sort of miss a few yeah. games and I, I had a gap. And uh, look, on, on the soccer level, it was heartbreaking. What had you actually done to your knee? I'd torn, training with England in 86 before the World Cup, I'd torn, torn the meniscus. Right. And so they cut it out. So it was just bone on bone. And then before the World Cup, I'd, I'd trained really hard for Bobby Robson to be fit. And the bone on bone had just shattered the, the entire, all the articular cartilage and everything. And when they drained it back in Manchester, um, the, the, the doctor said to me, he says, you've got no cartilage left on that right side. He said, you're going to, every time you twist and turn, you're going to feel it. Um, so that, that, was, that was why he suggested that I, that I pack it in. Um, so what was you asking me a question about? No, how, how tough is it? Oh, how you know, tough what, is it, what, yeah. What, yeah. So on the day that, that I formally signed the documents, we, the England goalkeeper was the Watford goalkeeper, and we went down to Watford. Doc Crane that was his name. And afterwards, he, we had the documents. He said, we've cleared it with your, your, your doctors, with Sir Alex, everybody. He said, here, but before you sign it, I want to just show you one thing. And he took me into the physio's room at Watford. He had about two rooms. And he introduced me to a kid of 17. He said, this, this is this guy's name, whatever it was. He said, he got a tackle last weekend that had ruptured tendons on both legs. Now, you tell me where you've seen oh, a tackle where legs. a flag, both legs. So someone had come in with, both, with two legs up. And he said, this lad will probably not even walk properly again. Uh, he's an England youth international. Uh, so I chatted to the lad for a few minutes, got back into the room where these documents were to be signed. And he said to me, so Gary, here's the thing. You've played nearly 400 games for United. You've been played for England, gone, gone to a World Cup. Yes, you're, you're 20. I think I just turned 28. He said, it's a huge blow. He said, but you had a career. You had a great career playing for the biggest club in the world. He said, that kid next door will never, ever see a professional form. So he said, go on into the future with a, with a happy heart. Mm. And I thought, best advice ever. And I signed the document and I never, ever looked back because I remember what he said. And I think it's such a, a, it's a wonderful thing for him to do just to help me get over that yeah. sort of uh, disappointment. But then didn't you play for Kaiser Chiefs for a couple of years? I did. I, I went back to Cape Town and, and I ended up coaching the keeper there. And then we did, you know, as my knee got better, um, we did a couple of sessions and I found that actually, if I didn't put too much pressure on it, it was okay. I could never have trained every day. 
Um, and Kaiser Chiefs were like, like the Man United. And um, I phoned up the owner, Kaiser, and said, look, uh, you know, it used to be not bad, but I'm not so sure about the knee. What about joining you and giving it a try? And so I joined Chiefs and I was, it was just an incredible experience. I mean, hard for, um, you know, British folk to, to know what it was like, but I was only white guy in a black soccer team in, in, the, in the apartheid era. So, you know, the games took place in townships, blacks only townships. Um, and I went and joined Chiefs uh, who have an incredible support. I mean, you know, we got 80,000 for most of our home games. Um, and, because I only played and didn't train too much, and when I did train, I kept off my knee. I managed two seasons, and we eventually got my league title that I missed out at United. I got it in my second season at Chiefs, but it was just the cultural difference that was amazing for me. Um, going into places where, as a kid and as a white kid growing up in apartheid, I wasn't allowed into these areas, and now I went in almost as an, an honorary black at a time when you know Mandela was coming out of prison, and I just loved it. I love the, the, the sort of the dancing we did before every game. It was so different <laughs> to United. Um, and, and to be fair, I actually played some of my best goalkeeping then because I, I didn't train too much. I loved it. We won a lot of trophies and um, I was remembered for the one thing I did. It wasn't anything to do with goalkeeping, by the way. It was that in front of 100,000 at Ellis Park, which is a big stadium in Joburg, we were playing in a cup final against our big enemies, Pirates. And um, there was a lull in the game. And the crowd started chanting, Geri, Geri. And I started doing a Zulu dance in front of 80,000. And it's probably uh, gone down as the worst Zulu dance ever by anybody in the history of Zulu dances. <laughs> but the fact it was done by a white guy in the middle of a big soccer match, it became one of the most memorable things. And for years afterwards, I'm talking decades <laughs> afterwards, in Johannesburg, I'd walk down the streets and they'd see me and the guys would start dancing and trying to repeat my horrendous That's Zulu brilliant. dance. So, yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> is that on YouTube? It is on YouTube. Go and have a look. It is somewhere on YouTube, yeah. There you go. You'll have to get that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gary, it's been an absolute joy listening to your career. Oh, Thank you, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. It was uh, absolutely brilliant. fantastic. Yeah. So, so yeah. a little, a little bit different from a, a different angle, I, I suspect. Yeah, but I guess, I guess, in closing, for me, it still will always be my my greatest privilege to have played for United because, you know, if I'd have gone to play for Ipswich or whatever, it just, you know, United is even here in America. I still go around representing United occasionally and meet up with fans, and it it mm. just is the most amazing club and an absolute privilege to be involved in all I hope now is we get back to where we were because you know being happy to finish top four for me is just is not united at all and hopefully we will soon be right up there with the best and challenging European Champions League again as we did in your day Maisie absolutely guys absolutely it's been a pleasure mate (laughs) all right all the best Gary sorry before we go sorry one more question so many people have recommended you to the podcast. Who would you like to recommend to us? Wow, it depends who you've spoken to. I mean, Gordon, have you spoken to Gordon Strachan? Not yet. No, we haven't. No, Strachan's funny. I, I'd recommend him just because he calls it the way it is. And he's a bit of a wind-up merchant as well. And he's been hugely successful. So, uh, yeah, get Gordon Strachan on and let me know because I'd love to hear what he says. Brilliant. <laughs> We'll do we'll it. Uh, before you go, is there a way you can show us your view? Yeah, one second. Hang on a, hang on a sec. Oh, make us all feel better looking at these Look, grey clouds. I don't think that's going to make me feel better if I'm totally honest with you. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit uh, grey. So hang on a sec. I've got to turn this. How does one turn the screen around? Hang on a second. Here we go. There we go. There's the swimming pool. There's oh. the palm trees. There's the water. 
There's the yes. island just across there, and we look into the sunset. So uh, I told you, I told that you, I'd immense. wind you up. Where did it all go wrong, guys? Yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> yeah. It's besties comment. Yeah, I'm married to Miss Universe, living in Miami. That's my view, and it's all gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Fantastic. Uh, Gary, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gary. Cheers, guys. Pleasure, guys. Bye, Sam. Bye, Helen. Cheers, Maisie. Do you know what? That's the first time I've ever spoke to Gary Baylor, and I absolutely loved it. Oh, it's great, wasn't it? It was fantastic. Yeah. We, as Helen said uh, off screen, that we've probably had six or seven goalkeepers on now, and not one of them have said, oh, didn't mind being injured, but Gary seemed to be all right with it. No, that was brand new. But what a what a life. Six-year-old moving from Ipswich to South Africa and then obviously 20-year-old moving to Old Trafford. Wow. Do you think, Maisie, when he talks about how he was maybe a bit of an outcast at Manchester United, he found it quite difficult. If it hadn't have been for his personality, he's very confident in himself. Yeah. He might not have lasted so long at the club, but he was able just to put all that to side, the fact that yeah. he didn't really gel with his teammates. I've never no, heard someone admitting that before. No, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. The fact that he is the way he is probably got him actually through it. Mm-hmm. You know, because a dressing room is a, is a brutal place at times. It really is. Yeah. And it can be intimidating. You know, there's no love lost because as Gary was saying there, you know, for a goalkeeper, you're number one. You know, you don't want to be number two, number three. And the pressure is under and, yeah, you know, not having a wife, not having a girlfriend there. This blonde bombshell coming over from South Africa. You know, good-looking kid. Hard life for him, wasn't it? <laughs> did, you, did you like his um, the, the get-married-early advice? I think I think Sir Alex used to mention that about getting married Yeah, I'm sure I've early. seen him in a press conference saying that, that the best yeah. thing players can do is get married early. Well, I think he just... It, well, it might be good, it might be not. It depends who you marry. But... Um, each to I think their own. I th- I th- yeah, I think what, what Sir Alex is doing there and what, was it the physio or the, the assistant coach said to him? You know, maybe you should look to getting married is about stability in your football career. That just cracks me up though. Like, maybe you should look to get married. Okay, well, yeah, who to? Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> just anyone. <laughs> yeah. Just be married. And then you end up with one of Miss World. Universe. Miss Universe. Yeah. What's the difference between Miss World and Miss Universe? Well, the, the world is contained to just the world. The universe in, is everything. Yeah, his wife's from Mars. Yeah, it could be, yeah. you know, all of the planets in all of the solar systems. Right. She was, in 1992, she was better than all of them. What a life as well. Yeah. What a great little journey. And I was living on Miami Beach. I know. Just down the road from uh, Miami, so we can go and watch Bex and watch Phil. Living the dream. Listen, guys, after this pandemic is hopefully over one day, we need to get to Miami. We've already yes. had Phil, that's fine. We've already had Gary, that's fine. But we can still still make a trip of this. We know a lot of people there. Yeah. Smudgy's there, Phil's there. We've got friends Nanny's there. there. Yeah. We've got loads of mates in Miami. We really do. Fantastic podcast. It was a fantastic podcast. I have, And I think fantastic. the older brigade will enjoy that. Oh, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Right. Should we do some emails? Yes. Uh, usually, Helen, I would suggest you go first, but I've just glanced down this one and I'm going to read it because it, it, it for you. So this is from Ian in Kenya. It says, hi, Simon, Helen and May. What? Not Maisie, just May, which is my favourite because it's called me Simon. Simon and May. Uh, my name is Ian from Kenya. I don't know if you know of Kenya, but down here, Manchester United is more of a club closer to religion. Uh, guys, Kenya, we all heard of Kenya? 
Yep. Nice. Either of you been to Kenya? Nope. No. Tash been to Kenya? Nope. You been to Kenya? No, I nearly went. I wanted to go on safari to Kenya um, for various reasons. I then didn't go. No, I, but I'd like to go to Kenya. I'd very much like to go to Kenya. Okay. Um, so, for a suggestion, I would like to hear from Eric Bailly about his journey and injuries and Helen Evans. She says it would be boring, but I don't think so. Coming from Northern Ireland to England, getting to MUTV, meeting to marrying Johnny, and more importantly, motherhood in her busy world. How could that be boring? Be safe. Thank you all. Ian's got a point. How could that be boring? Mm, depends who's listening. Well, Ian, for a start. <laughs> May. Hopefully we'll uh, we'll touch on some of that in Johnny's episode when we eventually do. Yeah, maybe we'll get that on that, yeah. Yeah, if we can ever get hold of the contact. Ian, Evans, if you're listening and you're holding your breath, it's not good news for you, pal. It's not good news for you. I am boring. Thank you very much, though, Ian, for your email. Darren Thanks, Beach said... Email. Stop talking, Maisie. Interrupting, butting in. <laughs> I'm gutted about Ian calling me May. <laughs> Helen's homeschooling has now progressed to David May. <laughs> Hello to the fabulous trio. Love the podcast. I cannot wait for Mondays to come around and listen to the fantastic stories of all these greats at Manchester United and their stories. I would love to hear from Mick Phelan from his days with Sir Alex and now with Ollie. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Darren. That is one for the list. How long is our list? It's so long. It is long, but that's fine. We've got plenty of time. Joel in Nigeria says, Hello team, thank you for having Igalo on the podcast. I can tell you for a fact that what he went through is what a lot of us went through. Nothing was promised for us in Nigeria. Going back home was never an option. But you can see his tenacity and resilience. It's something to emulate. Thank you for giving him the opportunity to share his story with us all. Uh, That's from Joel. Joel, thank you for listening. I think we can all agree that Odin Igalo was a phenomenal guest. Ah, fantastic. If you ever feel down, just listen to that podcast. Yeah, it's amazing. Cheer you right up. Thank you very much. And one last one, guys. Isaac Harper. Thank you for the brilliant job you do on the podcast. I have been a United fan throughout my life. Living in New Zealand, we don't have the same quality of football to watch. But because of Beckham, have been a diehard ever since. My favourite podcast was the legendary kitman Albert Morgan. The loyalty and love for the club manager players is inspiring. I look forward to more episodes and await the hero, David Beckham. We are lucky in this country to continue our lives as normal without COVID really affecting anything apart from international travel. I hope you're all safe in the United community and everybody remains happy and healthy. Special mention to Wayne Rooney's episode. What a legend. Can't wait for part two. Could listen to this podcast all day. All the best, Isaac. How have we got to the end of today without talking about Roy Keane joining Instagram? Yeah, good point. Don't know where that came from in my head, but... Is anybody going to be brave enough to message him? Maisie. Helen. Also, the most Roy Keane ever, if you notice, he follows no one. I was just going to look to see if he follows anyone. He doesn't. No. He doesn't. Mm. Maisie, you've got to be the man to ask. If I see him, I will. On Instagram. Hi, Keeney. It's May. Yeah. Come on, Roy. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to our chat with Gary Bailey. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, You can rate and review this episode on whichever platform you're listening on. Um, have a wonderful day if you want to get in touch our email address is in the show notes it's unitedpodcast.mainite.co.uk and we'll see you next time bye bye pleasure's all yours troops see ya